So Don is out today. Don is not with us. Uh, Anthony is going to co-host. What's up, Anth? John Sebo, good to be back. Anthony is on the balcony of his apartment in New York City, so we might have some ambient New York City sound in the background. How bad does the city stink right now? It always really smells really bad in the summer. It's hot, dude. It's um, it's so steamy down on the concrete. I mean, when you got on the subway, it just hits you in the face. It doesn't smell that bad. I think Tuesday was garbage day, so you can definitely tell on that day. But, like, today's Thursday, so, I mean, it doesn't really smell. It's just so hot. There's no way. You can't get away from it. I'm not sure what's up with Don today. He He's a very, very smart individual who can sometimes let the seemingly most mindless things confuse him. We we talked on the last show about how there would be a week off. Um, we had recorded two Thursdays ago, and you know we said we wouldn't record. The one show would kind of lead us into this week, and since that show didn't go up until Monday or Tuesday after we had recorded, Don didn't think the week off started, so he didn't think we were recording this week for some reason. <laughs> So Don is out, uh, but the show will go on. And um, Richard Lawler is a debut tonight. He is uh, one of the editors at Engadget.com. You ever read that, man? It's like a tech. I haven't. I haven't. It's like a tech site. I'm sure you've seen their articles. You know, stuff comes up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you click on an article here or there. Um, You'd recognize, like, if you clicked on an article, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I've been on this page before or whatever. Okay, gotcha. And uh, we're going to talk tech and sports and iPhones and these kinds of things with Richard Lawler later. And uh, after three things, our first guest is the author of the Book Club Book of the Year. So I suppose we should announce uh, the winner of the Book Club Book of the Year. Every year around this time, we uh, name a book the Book of the Year. The first winner was Sweetness by Jeff Perlman. The second winner was uh, Dream Team by Jack McCollum. The third winner was The Squared Circle by David Shoemaker. And last year was Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. And this year, the Book Club Book of the Year is the best team money can buy. The Los Angeles Dodgers' wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse by Molly Knight. Uh, so Molly's going to join us to talk about the Book Club Book of the Year. Uh, the book's out on paperback now. She should talk about updating it and her experience uh, writing the book. So looking forward to having Molly on. It was a tough year. There was a lot of a lot of books to choose from this year. I think when it came down to it, the probably the last three I considered were The Arm by Jeff Passan, uh, the Alice in Chains book I read by David DeSola, and the Molly Knight book. And uh, just in the end, decided to go with, with that as the book club book of the year. So we're going to talk to Molly later about that. We'll end the show with one last thing. And we will get started now with three things. On the count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right, so the PGA Championship start today. We're going to get this up Thursday night going into Friday morning. Anthony, you were there today? 
Yeah, I've actually I've been there the last three days. I uh, went to the two practice rounds Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I went there uh, today for that afternoon wave. So it was uh, it was a good day. It was really cool out there. So maybe in the least predictable kind of happening in golf history, uh, Phil Mickelson did not play well today. I would have. He, yeah, he struggled. Um, I'm surprised, honestly. He, he's been playing so well, and he's already won the championship at this course. He uh, he actually battled back and got to one over, which actually wasn't that bad. I mean, he, I think he had it to like five over at one point. He really had it going backwards, and then actually pretty good for him to grind out to 71. Yeah, he's tied for 55th. I, I just kind of had the feeling that there just wasn't enough space from basically playing the best tournament of his career and not winning it. Yeah. To this, I just didn't expect much from him. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say he's in danger of missing the cut just yet. But he didn't have a great day. Uh, Jimmy no. Walker, who I have no yeah. idea who Jimmy Walker is. He's minus five. With really? Six. Yeah, I don't think I know who that is. Oh, I'm surprised. I mean, he's probably won. Probably won like five times in the last four years, probably. And yeah, maybe I've heard of him. I don't know. It doesn't. Jump, he's uh, jump he's been quiet. He, he's been quiet as of late. So, but no, I think you definitely know. You you know who he is. I think if you were to see him. What's the course like? You expect the winner to be? Oh know, man, it's hard, dude. It's hard. So you expect the scores not um, to be as, as low. Yeah, I mean those score. I mean it was as perfect a day as you can play in today. Um, it was a good good round to do something crazy, and really only one person shot sixty five. So I like. I think it's only going to get tougher. Uh, the rough is, is crazy. I, I was fortunate enough to play like a month before, uh, and I played there a bunch of times. But like the rough is just so thick, and like it's almost U.S. Open esque. Um, so today was the perfect day to score, and, and really no one did anything that crazy. Um, so I think it's going to play tough. I think a lot of those guys who shot even par today are like very much in it. Like Speed, that's a great start for Speed. Like. Like he's not out of this at any um, given chance. So I think it's going to play tougher than these tournaments usually do. And obviously they moved it up so that people could play in the Olympics, and just about everyone's bailed out of the Olympics at this point. Uh, let's, yeah, yeah, it's a crazy schedule. Because then you got the Ryder Cup too. Right, so they're still going to have a, bu- a, lot of a busy August, but obviously moving the last major up. Um. You know, it's, yeah, it's a yeah. typical Thursday of a major, you know. You can't put too much into it, I right. don't think. You know, it's the first day out there, but... I think I think Rory's the biggest story, to be honest. Yeah, he's way, way he, at the bottom. He, his putting is, uh, it's like, it's getting to the point where it's like, might be a problem. Like, it's not like he's ice cold anymore. Like, he was on the practice screen today at like 7 o'clock, and he like finished at... 130. You know, he was putting forever. Like, I think something's up. So, yeah, 74. I mean, he's faded. Tied for I think he, I think it's a story. I mean, more, he's faded since the beginning of last year. He he's struggling. So, I think that's a big story. I think he needs to kind of get it together. Yeah, I think usually at the beginning of a major, the story is more about who played poorly than who played well. Right. Right, not who's like still in it, right? It's like, yeah, Dustin Johnson was a disaster today, so uh, we'll talk about that all day today. But like, there's still a lot of good players who shot a score that doesn't, you know, 
lose the tournament for him. So I think there's still a ton of players in it. Yeah, Dustin Johnson shot 77. So I guess yeah, I watched probably most of his back nine. He was all over the place. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things. Kind um, of like baseball in April, you can't win the division, but you can lose it. And probably a lot of guys lost this tournament today, but I don't know that Jimmy Walker won it by any means. So no, no, nah, nah, not at all, not at all, not at all. I wouldn't be surprised if the the winning score is like around eight or nine. I don't think it's going to get that crazy. So, Are you going to go back down um, again? I think or? the weather is going to be shitty. Yeah, I'm going to go tomorrow, kind of like same thing as today, like this afternoon, like we work at like 2-ish or something, just because I, I work so close. So, like I got there at like 2.30 today and got to watch, you know, the second wave of players. So I'll do that again on, or tomorrow, Friday, and then I'm going, um, I'm going all day Saturday and then watching from on Sunday, so I'm excited. Hopefully the weather holds up. They are they're saying bad stuff, so Harris English Hopefully this thing doesn't get too bad delayed. Harris English sounds like a made up player. Yeah, right? Yeah. And like I'm I'm like ninety nine percent sure he's American, but he does he not sound American, American yeah. at all. Yeah, he's American. He he shot a minus three and he yeah. he sounds made up. I don't believe that that's a real person. <laughs> So the PGA yeah. is no, off. That's, that's, that's a real person. Yeah, the PGA is off. It's in New Jersey. We'll talk more about it next week. Uh, something else kind of off and running is NFL training camps. I thought the Hall of Fame game was going to be this weekend. It's not. The Hall of Fame game still isn't until uh, August 7th. The last preseason games are September 1st. So this is going to drag out. Wow. I mean, it is wow. going to drag out. That's a lot of NFL live. Oh, yeah, it's brutal. A brutal, just the way the calendar fell. It's a brutal training camp. Uh, Le'Veon Bell is is peeling his uh, suspension in August. He says he had a new phone, so they couldn't get a hold of him. I'm sure, that'll hold up. Uh, new York must be pumped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick is finally signed. Like as if there was ever a doubt. Uh, so he got one year, twelve million. I don't know if that was what he wanted, but he can make up to fifteen million. Three million of bonuses too. Yeah, yeah, up to fifteen yeah. million. Uh, Josh Gordon at his first day at camp today. He says he's in the past. I've been a selfish player, quote unquote. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many games of how many games has he like played? Like, what's his game like percentage? Has he played like forty percent of his career? That could be about right, forty percent. Yeah, I don't know. He's missed a lot. Wow, he's missed a lot, and it's all been you know his prime. He's missing his prime. Uh, so, but I, yeah. I did see his uh, locker is right next to RG 3s so it'll be up to RG three, I guess, to, um, to keep him on the straight and narrow. The Rams released Nick Foles. Who the Broncos say won't be a Bronco. Uh, the Vikings extended Mike Zimmer. They're really sticking with Osweiler, huh? Uh, no, he's gone. He's in Houston. So they're going to go with oh, Sanchez. Really? Yes. Damn. Yeah, they're going to start Sanchez while they wait for Paxton Lynch oh, Jesus for next Christ. year. Yep. Yep. So. Wow, that's tough. Yep. Pierre Paul is. Uh, Manning to Sanchez, huh? Right. Pierre Paul and Victor Cruz are practicing for the Giants tomorrow. Um, 
There's a bunch of guys on PUP to start camp. That is not like PUP in the regular season where your guy misses six weeks. Uh, PUP is essentially day-to-day. Uh, the guys on PUP could be off and back um, the next day. And the big news out of Saints camp is for the first time in three camps, Jairus Bird is healthy enough to start the first day. So maybe that will mean for the first time in three years, Jairus Bird will do something. So we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but he is ready, ready to start. So training camp has started. But it doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot because nothing is actually going to happen until the first preseason game, which is August 7th. And then most teams don't even have a preseason game until like that Thursday, the 11th or whatever. And it'll go all the way until September 1st. So get ready to grind grind out. so long. Yep, and get ready for all the awesomely devastating news about some guy needlessly tearing his ACL uh, to prepare for the season. Can't wait. Last thing, uh, college football did something smart, which is not often in their DNA. Usually they get really stubborn, but they did decide today uh, to abandon playing the college football semifinals on New Year's Eve in 2008. 19, 24, and 25. They will still play on New Year's Eve this year because it's a Saturday. And in 2021 and 22, because 21 is a Friday, but it's a holiday, and 22 is again a Saturday. So they, so they are avoiding work days at, at the very least. Uh, which, you know, 2018, 19, 24, and 25 would have been like last year, you know, where they're playing semifinals on the first semifinal on New Year's Eve when half the country's still at work. Um, couple quotes. Right. Uh, Once we settled on this as the best possible alternative, the rest of the dominoes fell, uh, says Bill Hancock, who said that it was a combination of the drop in viewership. Uh, and a simple and elegant alternative. Uh, that's what uh, swayed everyone. In other words, we lost a lot of money. That's what swayed them. I don't think it had anything to do with anything yeah, and I, like, simple and elegant. I, I, I'm so happy this happened because, like, I remember this year, it's just like you want to, like, go out or do something like that day of New Year's Eve. And it'd be so much better to wake up, like, kind of hungover in the morning and be like, oh, sick. Like, we have to pull up the semifinals today. Like, Instead of, like, it delaying your plans for the night before, right? So, like, I think having it the next day is so much better, no matter what happens. Like, if, you have that, if New Year's Day, it just it makes so much more sense to them. Just, I think everyone during the day, I think they get way more viewers. Yeah. So, like, thank God they figured that out. It was awful. I mean, they lost 40% of the viewers from the year before. You know, my team played on New Year's. <laughs> My team played on New Year's Eve. I got to watch the first half. Yeah, I remember you weren't even like able to watch. Couldn't that, even like, watch the second half. half. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it yeah. brutal. So, luckily, they filed some common sense, which is very rare for college football. Um, but yeah. that's that's three things. Oh, I also want to mention real quick that there is a um, the real sports this week that came out on HBO is a one hour all about what a joke the Olympics are. So I will say I recommend it. They did a great job. But I will caution you 
on if you want to maintain any level of excitement about the Olympics. You might want to wait until after to watch it. I mean, it's a joke what the IOC does to the countries that host these Olympics. And good for countries like Norway who oh, stood disaster. up and said, we're just not putting up with this ever again. So, uh, But they did a really great job on yeah, I mean, detailing that. That's a disaster. Yeah, it's pretty disaster. Can't believe that that's what it's like when, when they start two weeks. Yeah, they they start soon. Yeah, week sixth or right around when the yeah. NFL preseason. Does. The toilets, the toilets don't work. Yeah, they have running sewage like right through the through the <laughs> cities. Oh, it's so ridiculous. You know, and people today were trying to like put the flame out, protesters and stuff. And I do feel bad for the people of Brazil, but you know what? Their government, their government took the took the bait from the IOC despite the fact that there is now a long history of this happening to city after city you should see the Greece Greece hosted the Olympics in this century you know and they they have a stadium that they built for almost a billion dollars they ha- they haven't used completely it abandoned time since the Olympics ended it's just it's a it's a joke yeah, yeah, it's brutal, and they build these. Yeah, I mean, like like Sochi's. A, if you like see pictures of Sochi right now, oh yeah, it's like a Sochi, abandoned town. Sochi was in it. They they did a piece from Sochi, and they got arrested when they were down there. <laughs> so I don't know. It's brutal. I just thought I'd mention it. It's worth a watch. It's on Real Sports. I'm sure it's on HBO Go and HBO Now and all that kind of stuff. And it'll be on all month on HBO. They did a great job with it. The IOC is a joke cool. for sure. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with Molly Knight. Next guest is from Los Angeles and is a graduate of Stanford. She spent eight seasons covering baseball for ESPN the magazine before becoming a New York Times bestselling author. Her book, The Best Team Money Can Buy, on the Los Angeles Dodgers' wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse, was recently named the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Year. And she is making her second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome. It's Molly Knight. How you doing, Molly? I'm doing well. I, I appreciate uh, hearing the Stanford fight song um, in a forum that's not a political uh, ad or <laughs> or um, or used in a convention for political purposes. So thank you for that. <laughs> what is it like as a Stanford grad when you hear the song by Free all right now in some kind of setting? Does it? You know, it depends. It's it's weird. Um, it's weird to, when the USC band plays it uh, because they play it when they get a, a turnover. So it's super weird. Um, I mean, when when a, when a football team recovers the ball of a turnover, so it's super weird um, when Stanford's playing USC because uh. Stanford plays it when they score a touchdown, and USC plays it like <laughs> a good thing happens. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> but um, yeah, the USC band stole it, and and they don't. Um, I confronted them on Twitter about this in a joking way, and they um, 
they, they know they 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 admit it and, and laugh about it, so that's fine. Yeah, that's sh- we're, we're that's good. shameful. That's shameful on their end, though. Get your own songs, USC. Come on now. Yeah, I mean they're they're they have really talented musicians, but um, they they only they have a repertoire of like six songs, so um, or at least six songs they're allowed to play at football games, which is <laughs> you know it's neither here nor there because um, I, I believe as I as I as I tweeted to them with the talent level of musicians they have because they have a lot of great um, you know great players. They should be able to play right. from a wide variety of newer songs, and they choose uh, to remain in 1972. So here we are. <laughs> well, you must be getting pumped about Stanford football. I mean, coming off a Rose Bowl win, you got maybe the most exciting yeah. player in the country on the team. Tell me, tell me about yeah. Stanford football. Are you getting pumped or what? Yeah, you know, I mean, I just think David Shaw has, is is. Um, I was actually asked to participate in this whole like this Pac-12 network. Uh, is putting together polling for you know for each each Pac-12 team for best uh, you know all century team uh, top 12 players and then the best coach and and I you know choosing between Bill Walsh and Jim Harbaugh and David Shaw um, I wound up picking David Shaw not because I necessarily think that he is a a better coach than Harbaugh or or Jim Jim Walsh but I feel that for the culture of Stanford um, for he's the best. He's the best Stanford coach they've ever had. He's the best fit. Right. Um, I, I think get that. that these guys, these guys, um, bought into his system, and it's it's almost it kind of reminds me of like, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals or something, where um, you know if if somebody leaves or, or gets hurt, it's like next man up, and and um, they don't have a quarterback this year. They have, but they have they keep getting all these blue chip recruits, the top you know pro style quarterbacks in in the last couple of classes. So. Um, they're going to have a competition, and I guess you can never feel too too overly confident when you don't know who's going to be the quarterback. But um, but yeah, I, I yeah I kind of do though. Um, it'll be a tough it'll be a tough road schedule this year. I'm not um, looking forward to that, but it should be fun. We're going to be going. To, I'm going to be going to see them play in Notre Dame this year, which is exciting. Oh, that's for me. Awesome. I've never been. I've never I've never been to South Bend before. Um, I don't think so. I, I'm really excited about that. I, I can't wait to um, see that stadium and tour the campus, and, and um, you yeah, know, but their fans have always been really gracious to us. So, I'm um, looking forward to it. That'll be really cool for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Notre Dame trip, yeah, that's great. Uh, so yeah. that that's probably their big non-conference game, then I would assume, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, I mean, you don't count uh, uh, the Rice Owls. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's their big uh, their big non-conference game. It's, going to be, um, I believe, the second weekend of October, so hopefully not too cold for those of us um, Californians venturing to the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it will be definitely... Uh, what is it like in, in Los Angeles right now? Is it really, really hot? It's really, really hot here in the East yeah, Coast. Is it, what, is it a hot it's, summer? It's 97 degrees right now. Yeah, it's been a it's, hot it's summer miserable. here. It's, I think it's been a hot summer everywhere. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's really... It's, it really didn't get miserable until like this last week, and then there have been all these fires um, that have made the air quality oh, yeah. really bad. So it's seen some been pictures. kind of gross. Yeah, I've seen some pictures. I we yeah. I was there a couple of years ago in August, uh, and I was pleasantly surprised on how mild the weather was. I guess I just got lucky. Yeah. But um, right. You know, it was you know the night we went to the Dodgers game. I mean, it was like seventy-one degrees yeah. that night. And it was a beautiful night. You know what I mean? It just got lucky, but yeah. Uh, weather. Yeah, no, it, yeah. 
it's Mediterranean climate, or at least it's supposed to be. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's usually pretty great, pretty pretty righteous. But um, but yeah, sometimes it gets it gets gnarly. I was uh, I was thinking about about talking to you today last night and um, was looking at the book, looking at some stuff, kind of thinking about where we go. And I, I was bouncing around on the internet and I watched. Uh, I was watching uh, – Steve Gleason has a documentary coming out called Gleason about his struggle with uh-huh. ALS. And I was listening uh-huh. to the director talk and he's kind of talking about how one of the hardest things was deciding what the end of the film was because, yeah. you know, when, did, when do you stop? And that's a different story obviously. But I was thinking about the best team money can buy and how – it's really a story that hasn't ended yet. I mean, they haven't no. they haven't won the World Series. Uh, Clayton Kershaw is still there. The ownership group is still there. Um, right. You know, and so much of this book uh, is kind of still happening. Um, and I know the paperback came out, and you did extend it. Right. Um, you did add a new, a new chapter in the paperback. We can talk about that. Right. But I was wondering how you look at this story, and it's evolution and if you feel like uh you're still your book is still maturing in some way the story is still existing out there and what level you want to be a part of that yeah i mean it's it's you're right and that was that was part of the um, frustrating that's probably the most frustrating part about writing this book is it was a moving target you know like i wasn't writing a biography of um you know Miller Fillmore or, or FDR or somebody who's been long dead. Um, I'm writing about stuff that's happening like every day. So in addition to trying to, you know, to trying to write a book about stuff that I've seen and reported, I'm also having to like, you know, report in real time as well because things happen and, and you can't like, that you can't control. I mean, like I, I, I didn't know if some of my main characters were just going to up and get traded. Um, and I guess that, that adds, that provides, um, a sense of drama that maybe you don't get in like television shows where you know you know they're not going to like kill off this famous person <laughs> unless unless it's like Shonda Rhimes and she she does what she wants and she's awesome. But you know, um, they're they you kind of you kind of know they're not going to get rid of um, of their main characters. But in baseball, you, you don't know. You have no clue. And I think. That that can be that, that was definitely scary for me. Um, I I think uh, for, for me I, I, the book is done. Um, I'm not going to keep adding chapters every year. But if the Dodgers win the World Series this year, then I, I will um, add, add one next year. Or I suppose whenever they the next time they win the World Series, I would I would add um, right add to it. Uh, but yeah, the story is still it's still being written. Um, we'll see we'll see what happens. It's 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 um, it's just so hard. Sports are so hard. Like, you could have the best team, especially in baseball, and not win um, the World Series. So, it, it's hard. Yeah, I remember last year. I remember last year before the playoffs, we had Jonah Carey on, and Jonah Carey is such a yeah. great guest. He's been so great to us. And yeah, we were having a really tough time because I kept throwing questions out to, and Jonah's a really analytical guy, you know, and right. he's really into the number side, and I kept throwing stuff out and he's just like I don't know it's too small of a sample size uh, there's so much randomness in baseball now in playoffs right. and you know you could sense the frustration from him and I think 
there is a frustration from baseball fans sometimes when, um, you know, when a team like the Giants a few years ago or, you know, right. uh, what were they, how many games they won, I don't remember, not 95, less than right. that. You know, just right. sneaking in in wild card and beating Pittsburgh and then, you know, going from there, going on their run. But, um, you know, I think this is something that Major League Baseball is happy exists. You know, I don't know, sure, if, you know, but it's different. It's not like, you know, the 87 Mets or whatever won 90-something games and didn't even make the playoffs because the Cardinals won 90-something right. plus, right. plus one. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that that's, that you're absolutely right. I think that uh, baseball, absolutely, you know, absolutely loves um, the randomness of it and, and they want as many teams to feel, as many fans of different teams to feel like their team is still in it, which is why they added the second wild card, obviously. I mean, it used to be at the trading deadline, maybe only, I don't know, 10 teams are, are looking at, at buying, and now it's like it's like half and half or more um, looking at looking at um, trying to make the playoffs. Because for some of these teams, you know, when Pittsburgh made the playoffs for the first time in forever, when Toronto made the playoffs for the first time in forever, that's really meaningful to a fan base. Right, the Royals. Really, really exciting. Yeah. The Royals, exactly. Yeah. We've seen these teams um, – who have tortured their fans for so long, and, and it's a big deal. Even if it's only the wild card, I mean, obviously it's disappointing to just play one game. But can you imagine rooting for a team that has not has never has not played the postseason in thirty years, and then they go? And how how cool that is! So I, I do think the second wild card is is good. Um, I, I know some people are are against the idea that a team like um, you know Pittsburgh last year winning however many games they won like ninety five games or something having to face Jake Garrietta right. in a one game playoff. I mm-hmm. mean that, that is brutal. Um, it's just it's the way it worked out. But um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think that that it's um, it's exciting, and I think that now that they have changed the rule to um, to so that all the all the teams uh, play on the same begin, begin their final games of the season at the same time, I think that that's real a real improvement. Cause I remember a couple of years ago. I think it was the, it was when um, when the Giants had to do the year the Giants won they had to go into uh, Pittsburgh yeah. to to play a one game wild card yeah, and, and the Pirates burned Garrett Cole the day before the final day of the season mm-hmm. to try to catch the Cardinals and lost and then the Cardinals were like well forget it then we're we're not going to start waiting they scratched Wainwright um, and they knew they didn't need to win that game so so Cole. Didn't, didn't get to go in the uh, in the final. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, in the wild card against yep. the Giants. You've been used, and the Cardinals got to use Wainwright in Game One of the NLDS against the Sixers. I mean, that's just like obviously that's not the reason why the Giants won the World Series, but uh, it's it's much tougher to face Garrett Cole than than um, I think it was Edinson Volquez. Um, yeah, and the Giants. Uh, yeah. The Giants weren't in a race, so they got to rest Bumgarner for the playoff game. Exactly. But, you know, those exactly. last two years, the Pirates have lost to Bumgarner and Arietta in the one-game playoff. Right. Yeah, so that's... Right. And if you look at it, I mean, if, if the Cardinals had been playing on the East Coast and the Pirates had been playing in, in Arizona, you know, the Cardinals start Wainwright that day, and say they win, the Pirates know, well, now we can't catch them, so right. we're not going to burn coal. Yep. You know? Yeah. And it's the opposite scenario. Um, we don't need to, you know... Obsessed about games from two years ago, but I just think it could be a really, really cool, fun, exciting thing this year. If um, now that all the games start at the same time, well, we're just a couple days away from the trade deadline, and I wonder what yes. you think the Dodgers are thinking because obviously at fifty-seven and forty-four, 
I know they feel like they right. got to feel like they're a team that could win a World Series, but also sure. the superstar player. The I mean, the guy that is the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, is right. in a cloud of uncertainty right now. You know, will he be right. back? Will he not be back? Uh, what do you think the Dodgers want to do the next few days? What do you think they will do? What's your sense? I mean, the front office has shown um, a little bit of a, of a willingness, and, or uh, an unwillingness, I was to say, a reluctance to to trade uh, big-time prospects. And last year we saw it when they when the Phillies wanted to, were looking to move Cole Hamels, and they reached out right. to the Dodgers. And, of course, of course they're going to ask for Seager and, and Urias and, and whoever, and but, but, but you know, they were told no, but then they said, okay, well, we're ready to, you know, what, 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 what do you want to offer? And they, they were picking around some ideas, but it took them so long to get back, get back to them with a formal offer that the, the Phillies took the Rangers offer. Um, and I think that really hurt, that really hurt the Dodgers. I think that was the, um, that was a, a piece they could have really used, not only in the playoffs, but to hedge against Frankie leaving. Right, they got um, Alex Wood instead, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, Big difference. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think they, um, I think that they uh, they're going to be obviously they're going to be looking for a bat. I think um, they've got so many injuries in the outfield, especially um, you know a guy like Jay Bruce springs to mind. He's been he's been um, mentioned a lot, but maybe who knows? I mean, maybe they could try something creative and 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 trade for um, a bat from a from a contending team where they could trade from their their surplus of, of young pitching or, or whatever that team needs. Um, we'll see. They, I mean, they could trade strength for strength. Um, they need that bat. Every team right now is looking for, that's the joke, looking for a bat, looking for a relief, looking for a relief arm and looking for starting pitching. You know, like every team is <laughs> looking for everything right now. Right. Um, I, that being said, you know, I, I criticized the Dodgers for not going hard against Hamels, for Hamels last year, but I think what the Cubs just did was, for Chapman was insane. Um, and, and even, even take stepping Aside from his whole um, domestic violence issues, which right. I, I mean, I wouldn't touch him with a ten foot pole because um, I, I think he's a crazy person. Uh, but just from a baseball standpoint, I mean, this guy um, is a is a, is a three month rental, and they gave up four prospects for him, and, and two or three of them are like top one hundred prospects. Um, that just seems insane to me. Right. I I can't. I and he's a reliever. We're not it. even talking about a starter here. We're talking about. What thirty innings yes. they're going to get out of him, maybe? Right, exactly. Yeah. And the difference between him and a guy that could have gotten for cheap might be like one or two wins down the stretch. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't get it. I was they're already there with seven game lead. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. Um, I, I, I like the aggressiveness if they were going for, you know, if they went out and got somebody who, um, you know, like you said, like a like a like a, like a tough starting pitcher. Like if they right. traded that package last year for Cole Hamels. Right on, you know. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm with. It. But this just makes no sense. Unless they, unless they think that their prospects, the guys they traded, aren't really that good. Um. Then, then okay. But um. Yeah. What What is your sense with Kershaw? Are you getting a feeling either way? Do you think we'll see him again this year? Or do you think he's going to have to shut down for the year? I mean, I think if there's any way, he, if there's any human way possible that he could come back this year, he will. He's that kind of competitor. I think. Yeah. Um. When he when he first got diagnosed with the bulging disc, um, I think they were pretty forthright about the injury. From everything I heard, he did not have any pain radiating, which was really good news um, in terms of not needing surgery. He didn't have pain radiating down his leg. I know he was in a lot of pain. It was difficult for him to sit down even. Um, 
this lower back problem. Um, and I think the timeline they gave was, 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 you know, six weeks around there. Timelines are always just sort of guidelines anyway. You never know if you're going to be quicker or take longer. Um, and I think he's picking up a ball and, and pitching or, or resuming his throwing program or trying to rehab like two and a half weeks in. And I was nervous and thought this, this seems way too fast. And, but then, well, you know, he's, He's a gamer. He's competitive, and then and then it turned out it was too fast um, because I believe that um, it was it was swelled it was swollen worse than it was. Um, I think that's what they said that it was that it was uh, even worse than it was the first time. Um, with swelling, you never know. That doesn't mean that he needs surgery. It just could be irritated and and like pissed yeah. off that um, at him for doing yep. that to his body. You know, mm-hmm. for for pitching two hundred innings a year every year. Um, um, 230 innings a year every year. I think that he, uh, his body is like, okay, dude, like we need to go into survival mode now. Like stop doing this. Um, I, 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 I believe he'll be back. I'm not, that's not from like talking to him and about right. it. Cause I don't even think at this point he knows or anyone knows, but, but, um, I, I think he'll be back. Yeah, I do. You know, I think one of the, you know, over the years when we, we, talk to authors with books and you know james andrew miller comes to mind he wrote that huge right uh book on ESPN. espn yeah and now anytime anything comes up at espn like hey mike trico's leaving it's like everyone goes and they ask they ask yeah. james you know like what's going on with trico and jeff Passon and i were talking about this when his book came out about how he's going to be the arm guy now you know like, yeah the guy. <laughs> yeah yeah and i feel like you're you're the dodgers person now you know it's like if, uh-huh. if something is going on with the dodgers i want to know what molly i check your twitter i want to know what molly knight says about it um because well, i read your book and the expertise and, and how much i love the book I, did you just become that person to me and maybe that's not fair in a sense maybe it's a blessing maybe it's a curse i don't know how do you feel about it yeah yeah um no i, I feel i feel honored that um you know i i tried really hard I put I put my for my my life's work into doing this book, you know, for for two three years, and and I grew up a fan of the team, and I've um, I, I tried really hard to give fans um, information that that I would want as a fan, um, and I and I, I'm really honored that that came across to to some people, and and that they um, respect it. I think sometimes we we have people in this industry um who don't actually like go to the games and like talk to the players talk to the coaches like see what goes on and i think they're, they're they're obviously their thoughts and their insights um can be totally valuable and i love the information age and all the stuff about um you know pitch pitch framing and 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 uh, exit velocity and all that that tells us that tells us a lot about who's good and who isn't but there's also um, something to be said for for being there and and seeing like what goes on um, and hearing things and noticing like oh wow like these players don't like each other or, or hmm this is not a coach's decision the player just yanked himself from the lineup you know like I remember people were yelling about um, some guy's batting order position like just and criticizing Mattingly about stupid. This guy was batting fifth, or you know, he should be batting second, or third, or fourth, and and um, and from that, it wasn't Mattingly at all. It was it was um, this player. Whenever he was listed to cleanup, he would he would throw a fit and and pull himself. It was, it was too much pressure, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
just things like that that you just wouldn't know. Um, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate I appreciate I appreciate the um, like that um, people recognize that I, I tried really hard. Yeah. <laughs> to, to bring on this situation. Uh, not only did you become a New York Times best-selling author, but you also became the star of a documentary. As uh, our friend uh, Jeff Perlman put out a documentary called Book Whore, and um, uh, your, oh yeah, yeah, your role was interesting because uh, Jeff, I think it was he was kidding a little bit, but he was also kind of talking about how difficult it is to sell a book and the things that you have to do to sell yeah. a book. And right. he talked a little bit with you on the film about how creative you were um, and some of the things that you did to sell your book. And uh, I know you're working on a second book. I don't think you've said what it's about yet. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm still working out the details, but yeah, okay. but yeah. Yeah. So how do you think your experiences as a quote unquote book whore, Jeff's words, not mine. Uh, and, yeah, of course. and selling the best team money can buy will affect your next project. What do you think you learned about selling books that will translate going forward to your next one and third one or however many you decide to write? Wow. I think um, I will definitely go on a vacation the next time um, between when I finish a book, like turn it in, and when it comes out. Because <laughs> I didn't do that this time. Uh, I think uh, I, I don't think I understood like how much time the promotion would would take. Not that I, I actually didn't mind it too much, but um, but I didn't I didn't totally get why a book had to be done like so far in advance. I mean, my book was only done because I was writing about a moving target. Um, we wanted to keep it as fresh as possible. My book was only done like three months, totally finished like three months in advance, which is crazy. Most books are done like a passion's book. I think was done like a year in advance almost. Um, right. And that's that's pretty standard. Like that's that's the non-insane way to do it. I mean, I was writing about uh, I, I I couldn't turn in a book that was that didn't have information from you know the last year. That would have been like insane. But um, so yes, I I, I learned that um, from selling the books. I think I was really resistant at first to. Um, I've never really been been big on self promotion. You know, I, I don't like retweet compliments or um, or like tweet a link to a magazine story 11 times. Um, and I think you've got to kind of get over yourself a little bit. You've got to try to find a way to do it to where you don't seem like super slimy um, and totally bombard people. But, you know, you just kind of got to get over it a little bit. Uh, I definitely tweeted way more than I ever have before. I think I like doubled my tweet total um, in, in like a two month span from like the first five years I was on Twitter and then like, the two months where I was really pushing the book um, when it came out, I think I sent as much in both time periods. But a lot of that was just replying to people, um, and I think people—it it was really great. I think people—I um, think it's important to acknowledge people who support you, um, just because it's—it's it's wonderful. It's—and and I don't think you should take it for granted. I mean, I—I I, um, I wrote a lot of little notes and, and handwritten and and. Um, yeah. And tweets and you know, tried to tried to acknowledge people because, my God, it doesn't matter how good your book is or your movie is or whatever it is you do. If if people don't don't um, go to see it or, or read it, then you know it's, it's like the tree falling in the forest thing. You know, I think when I first learned about your book, it was kind of the anecdotes, the cranky. Puig dynamic and the anecdotes kind of spilled out maybe early. That was maybe the first thing mm-hmm. I had heard about it. And I wonder if 
looking back now, I wonder if you worried a little bit at first that because then when you read the book, you realize that that's like one anecdote in the midst of hundreds. Oh, sure. You know, were you worried initially yeah. that people were getting the wrong idea about what the book was? And yeah, do you, do that was probably the toughest day of, of all of it. Um, I had to remind myself that publicity is good, you know, right. and that it got me, that it, that it was, um, that it was, that it was accurate, but it was, that it was, um, you know, that, that that's what happens when anybody writes a book. Um, there people are looking for headlines, right? So, um, it, that's just the way it goes. And you have to kind of like understand that that's, that's what it is. Cause, cause, um, it's the nature of the beast. Um, but yeah, I was, I was a bit anxious that day. Um, I, I was anxious that about players saying, um, like denying it or calling me a liar, um, which luckily didn't happen. Um, because I mean, I, I knew it was, it was, um, that it was all true, but right. you never know. Uh, it doesn't stop people from lying about it. Um, they, they didn't, they did not do that. Um, I know some of them, some were not happy that the stuff about Preet got out, but, um, but on the other hand, um, the, the, the many players who told me about all this stuff were just at the end of their rope. Um, they couldn't, they, they felt that they had tried everything to get through to him and they, and they felt like, well, you know what, maybe, if it gets out there, it'll it'll be a wake up call for him. And I think, in some ways, it was not just not because of me, um, but I think it sort of. I, def- I think it definitely, um, yeah, was was a moment where where um, it, it, yeah, I don't want to say I don't want I don't want to like overstate my influence on any of this stuff, but um, I imagine it was it was a, a not great moment for him to have that come out, and um, I don't know if it was if it was related or if it was just. Um, coincidence, but we really, we really haven't heard much about Puig being, yeah. um, you know, just in action since then. And, no. and like, this guy was never, um, a horrible, uh, you know, person. He's never, he's never, he doesn't go fire his gun, uh, it, you know, garage, during right? an argument with yeah. his girlfriend. He doesn't, mm-hmm. he doesn't, this is not like some kind of, this is not one of history's greatest monsters. He was just immature. He was just, you know, showing up late and, and being annoying. Um, so yeah, um, maybe maybe it did help the players who the players who were desperately trying to get him to um, to toe the line toe the line. Maybe maybe it did help them. Um, this was part of their campaign, I guess. <laughs> the sportscaster here with Molly Knight, the author of the best team money can buy. We're kind of finishing up. Uh, Molly's on Twitter. She's at Molly underscore Knight, and her book, uh, the best team money can buy, is the sportscaster's book club book of the year. It's the fifth winner. Um, I think I told you, Molly, the first winner was Jeff Perlman for Sweetness. The second was yeah. uh, Jack McCollum's Dream Team. Uh, the third was uh, David Shoemaker's book, The Squared Circle. And last year was uh, Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. So this is the fifth winner of that. Uh, and you can find the best uh, team money can buy on paperback now uh, with additional content. Uh, so you can find that in bookstores. And if you follow Molly... On Twitter, uh, she has a, a pinned tweet uh, where you can um, possibly work out uh, getting a bookmark uh, from <laughs> her uh, for the book. Uh, it's pinned at the top of her Twitter there, so if you want to check that yes. out. Uh, I send you a, a bookmark with Juan Uribe in a purple suit smoking a cigar. Um, I, I send that to you if you, if you buy my paperback. So right. And the, pa- cool <laughs> the paperback, like I said, does have additional content, which is always fun. So even if you... 
uh, read the hardcover. There's more um, in there. Uh, let's kind of finish up. Um, looking back uh, on the book, the whole process, um, starting it, writing it, I, I know you moved from New York. It's a big life change to come back to L.A. to begin the process, mm-hmm. and the book comes out, and it was a success, and New York Times bestseller. Uh, we talked about the book and the promotion and all the different things about it. Uh, when you look back at your career in 20 years, what do you hope the legacy of the best team money can buy will be, what it represents for you in your career? I mean, I hope that, that um, it will – that's a great question – um, I hope it's the first of, of multiple books. I hope that um, people will look back and say, oh, that's pretty good for, um, you know, first book of somebody who didn't ever even have any formal journalism training. Um, and I, and I, I also hope that there are, um, you know, a lot of the book signings I did, um, I, heard, I heard from via email and in person um, from a lot of women who love sports and, um, sometimes are made to feel like a little bit weird or out of place for it, um, and and that they they shouldn't. You know, um, it's like it's like men in the fashion industry, right? I mean, it's it's like if you if you love something and you're passionate, then then go for it. And I think uh, I, I know I met a lot of young girls too who um, who love going to Dodger games and Angel games and, and Giants games. And um, if if any of them, you know decide they want to go into a career in, in sports, if, if at all it was impacted by by me or by my book, I mean, that would just be awesome. Yeah. Um, I think that we need different voices in, in every um, in every field um, with different storytellers, different reporters and different people to um, yeah, to, to, to just to connect with, with the masses. So that's what I, that's what I would hope I, I think. I, I would hope that we that in 20 years, um, it's not 95% male-dominated um, industry. I would hope, I would hope that, we, uh, that we're more diverse than that. Well, again, uh, the book is called The Best Team Money Can Buy. Um, you can follow Molly on Twitter. She's at Molly underscore night. And the book is available, you know, wherever books are. And, uh, again, it's in paperback now. Uh, Molly, thanks so much. I love this book. I really did. I loved it a lot. And I, I can't wait for whatever's next to look forward uh, to finding out. And hopefully you'll, help, you'll let us help you uh, promote that one as well. Oh, well, that, I, I really I really appreciate um, you guys choosing this book, Steve, as, the, as, your, as your book of the year. That's really cool. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk soon, okay? Okay. All right, I want to thank Molly Knight for being on the podcast. You know, it was a tough decision this year for Book Club Book of the Year. I thought about a lot of books, and I just I just think that was the best book. So that's what I've done every time. I've just kind of picked the book I thought was best, and that was the one I thought was best. Thanks to Molly for for being on. Looking forward to reading whatever she writes next. It's actually like 12.40 a.m. Thursday night going into Friday. I'm just finishing this off and going to put it together and get a direct link out. I'm sure Don will have it up in the morning. But uh, I did want to mention this is the last book club update for a few weeks as Don and I will be using this time to do 5 on Fantasy. Uh, 
and talk fantasy football during the offseason when we still feel like there's some value in us talking about it. I think as the season gets on, there's sort of less value. I think if we can provide an opinion that would matter, it's now while people are doing drafts and things like that. And we'll do it as we build towards getting Michael Fabiano on, but the book club is just kind of on hold. Uh, it will be back in September. Jeff Broman has a book coming out in October, so you know we'll be doing that. Um, so there's a bunch uh, still coming up with the book club, but we're going to take a few weeks off at least to talk about fantasy football. All right, Richard Lawler is next. Uh, then Anthony and I will be back with one last thing. Our next guest is from Detroit and is a graduate of Ohio University. He is a writer and senior editor for Engadget.com and is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Richard Lawler. What's up, Richard? Hey, what's going on? Uh, thank, you, thank you so much for having me. And a uh, shout out to Richard Dice for tweeting about the podcast, which is how I found out about it. Yeah, I have been enjoying it ever since. Well, are, one man. one quick thing: I'm not yeah. an Ohio University graduate. I just don't want any of my fellow Bobcats coming after me for. Oh, you left early to pursue your profession. You left early, like to go pro. You, you know, look, man. When when the draft chooses you, you, yeah. you got to go. Yeah, yeah. You know who else did that? Is Joe Buck. Joe Buck. <laughs> Joe Buck was at Indiana and left early to be like to be a broadcaster. So interesting. When when you know your path, you just have to follow. I guess so. They have a very dramatic fight song for a school that you wouldn't think of as like necessarily huge into athletics. But wow, that's a dramatic fight song right there, I thought. So, you know who else is a big uh, Ohio guy is uh, Peter King. I did not know that. Yeah, Peter King. I, I would say he might be the most, I don't know, the most famous alumni in the sports world, I would say, non-athlete. Uh, possibly, possibly. I don't know. For Ohio, we've got, a uh, MacGyver. MacGyver. Interesting. He, 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 he was a bobcat. That's where he learned to turn, like, bologna sandwiches into machine guns? That That's where I learned it. I don't know <laughs> specifically which classes he took, yeah, but, right. yes, that, that skill is, is floating around on campus. When you started following me, I was, uh, you know, when you start, when you get an influx of followers, you know, occasionally when someone will at you, like Richard did the other night, we were talking about our thing from three years ago on Twitter, and you look through and you see where a guy's from or where people are following you, or what followers are real, you know, which ones are bots, like, oh, that that's not a real one, you know, whatever. And I oh, saw yeah. I saw Engadget, and I've all I'm a huge, like, I've, I've, I've just, I love Apple. Um, I have all the products, kind of an Apple guy, uh, in an Apple family, goes kind of through the family, we all got our different stuff, and uh, so I've been a reader for a long time. Uh, if I, I get interested somewhere in between maybe the iPhone 3 and the iPhone 4. I got interested in reading up about what was coming and and uh, getting into that end of it. Not just using the products, but wanting to learn more about them ahead of time and things like that. And I wanted to tell you this. I made a bold and brave move this time around. And I am I installed the iOS 10 beta on my iPhone. 
Ah, how are you enjoying it? I did the iOS 9 beta on my iPad, but I have not installed the beta yet. Yeah, I did the iOS 9 beta on my iPad as well, so that was kind of a secondary device. So I took the bold step this time because I didn't find it to be too terribly uh, buggy last time around to do it on uh, my primary device, and I I have enjoyed it. Uh, I was really excited about the rebuild of Apple Music being an Apple Music subscriber. And I was oh, really yeah. that was kind of why I jumped on it so quickly because I wanted to kind of get right in working with that and seeing the improvements and getting to learn about it. Uh, but I've enjoyed it so far. I think uh, one thing I think people are going to love is the iMessage and the improvements they made there because they're drastic and they're and they're smooth and there's some really really cool things I think that they did with uh, with the message. And that's what you're expecting when you get into messaging and having everything integrated. Now, I mean, I'm an Android phone user, so I'm a a green bubble guy. Gotcha. Uh, But once you have iMessage, and especially when you're using all Apple devices, that's the best part about it is that it pulls everything together. That's what you want. And they they did make some really useful changes with with, uh, iOS 10 and and the latest version of OS 10. Yeah, I think that's the one thing I'll, I'll say to people. When you get into that phone discussion, inevitably, where you know the greens versus the blue bubbles, when you get start talking, it, you know, I say, I don't know if that the Apple uh, puts out the best phone every year. I said, but what they do do for me that Android could never do is how well their products work with each other. And when you have a a MacBook, an iMac, an Apple TV, an iPad, and an iPhone. It would make no sense to not have the iPhone because all those devices just work so well together. And I think that's why I've remained loyal to the brand all these years is because everything has just always worked so well together. And then the number two thing I think I've enjoyed about it so much is their products really hold their value incredibly well for technology. That, that is definitely true. It's something that now I primarily use PCs and, and whatnot, but I, I do envy that particularly with Apple, is that often the phone or the, or the laptop or whatever is still worth something a year or two later, where many other devices, whether it's just because the hardware hasn't held up or because the software updates aren't coming out anymore, it may not hold that value, or just because you know people aren't really trying to buy a two-year-old PC laptop usually. Right. Do you, do you know, is there a bit, what is the reason that Apple is kind of an outlier in technology where they're able to make products that kind of hold value? Well, I think that you hit at you hit it. What the main cause is because how well the things work together. Once you're in the ecosystem, you can't really leave. So the demand is built. Also, they only sell mid-range to high-end products. There are no there are no really cheap Apple laptops, for example. Right. I think the cheapest one that you can buy right now is something like eight hundred dollars or nine hundred dollars, and and it really never goes below that. If you're on PC and you don't want to spend that much, you can buy a three hundred. laptop that will get the job done. And if you can buy a brand new laptop for $300, $400, $500, why would you buy a used laptop? And really the same thing with Android phones, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Because there is so much variation, the market is spread out. And that's really what what kills the value, kind of. Yeah, one huge difference that I've realized between people who are blue bubbles versus green bubbles, we'll kind of go with that. One huge difference is it seems like when an iOS 9 comes out, a huge percentage of blue bubble users will upgrade. Uh, at the very least, they're one behind. Where I've learned that from reading articles on your site and others, that 
Android phones, there's like five or six different given operating systems that a user could be on. Um, and that is really surprising to me. Why do you think that the adaption rate is so much higher with iPhones than it is with uh, Androids? Well, there, there are a lot of things that play into that. Uh, first of all, because there are so many manufacturers on the Android side, even, and even within those manufacturers, they have variations on hardware. Uh, but, but across the different uh, devices that you have, it's very difficult for them to roll out a software update that hits every device every single time. What Google has managed to do, especially over the last few generations of Android, is to pull more, I think, core type of features out of the main operating system so that maybe you don't necessarily have the latest version of the Android OS, but you can still get a lot of the features and a lot of the updates because they come out for the apps themselves, which is something that uh, Apple has actually started to do also, where, where some of the apps have come out of the core OS upgrades and they start coming through the App Store so they can deliver right. updates more frequently and, and deliver new features. This ha- you know, this approach it has its upsides and its downsides. Sometimes you have more flexibility. Sometimes if you have perhaps a security concern, that's something that, that is definitely a problem on the Android side. You have a lot of older phones that either don't receive any more security updates or are very slow at getting them. And you have known security flaws that you just kind of have to live with until your manufacturer decides to deliver an update for you. If you want the latest software, you can go with a Nexus phone. But with an iPhone, you pretty much know that you know when Apple delivers a software update, it's going to come to all of the devices. Right. And you'll have several years before it, it becomes obsolete. Apple has gotten into a really smooth pattern the last bunch of years where they put out, let's say they put out the iPhone 5, then they went to the iPhone 5S, kind of a smaller launch. Then they yeah. went to the 6 the 6S is most recent. Well, here's the thing I'm wondering what your intel is, where you, where you think they're going to go. Because we know the iPhone 7 is coming, and we assume the yep. iPhone 7 is coming. But the following year is the 10th year of iPhone. And I would be really shocked if they wouldn't want to put out the biggest, baddest, boldest iPhone in year 10. What do you think Apple's going to do? Are they going to deviate from their pattern? Um, do you think we'll go from iPhone 7 to iPhone 8 in two years? Do you think they'll change the naming? How do you think they're going to handle the 10th year of iPhone being a S year? Man, especially having followed this space for several years and, and just kind of being inside and talking to people who know so much more than I do about all the new, new devices that are coming out, trying to predict what Apple is going to do is one of the most <laughs> difficult things because... <laughs> They move at their own pace, and they don't really necessarily respond to the market in the same way that someone else does. So, for example, Samsung, I think I feel like I can pretty well predict what they're going to do because they, they look at the market kind of the way I do and react accordingly. Apple likes to lead, and even if someone else is maybe rolling out a new technology, if they don't feel like it's ready, they just won't add it. And that that's kind of how, how they, they roll. That said, there are a lot of things that... that could come in a new iPhone that could make it very revolutionary. One thing that we've been waiting on for quite some time is for them to switch from their current display technology, to, uh, I believe they use LCDs in the iPhone, to OLED, which Samsung has been using for a long time, for example. Mm. But Apple hasn't made that move yet. And there is some anticipation that in this phone, af- after the 7, that that might happen. And that, that would be a massive thing. You could, you could have a, a big jump depending on what they do they could have a big jump in display quality it could affect battery life making that longer because with the oled technology you don't have to light all of the pixels all the time 
if they you know if they're able to do it right it's just it's all it's so hard to, to say what they will do um there's also the rumors like with the seven that the the headphone jack will be gone in yeah. at least some of the models that scares me it, it's an it's always an interesting time coming up to iphone day yeah i use my headphone jack every single day so that does make me nervous a little bit but uh some they've forced me to change habits in the past and it hasn't been as scary in the end as i thought let me ask you a general cell phone question that i'm really curious yeah. about in the last couple of years uh the way we purchase cell phones has kind of changed dramatically where the subsidized phone model has kind of faded away and uh, the uh, uh the dealers have kind of forced us to whether it's the next program which i think is what at&t calls it uh, i'm not sure what they call it at verizon uh, this kind of idea of kind of leasing the phone, uh, going month to month. How have consumers kind of taken to this and have the, uh, as far as you know, have the the distributors of the phone, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, have they found this to be uh, better for them than what they were doing before with the subsidy? I think it has mostly replaced the subsidized model i'm it's hard to say exactly what the impact these this has kind of gone on over the last year especially where it's picked up uh, apple has their own um thing that they do right apple where, where they're kind of building the price into the service plan and and many of these cell phone providers also have some version of this as well and i think it just brings different options to the market when when you're a consumer you Especially the way that it's been, I guess, over the last 10 or 15 years since cell phones have really blown up. We've gotten used to, you see the price for the cell phone, but you know that's not really the price because it's subsidized and you're locked into a contract. Right. And people were becoming unhappy because you're locked into a contract. You can't upgrade when you want to. Yeah. And that, that's really the big thing is being able to upgrade to a new device when you want to so that you're not stuck on something old for most people. Yeah, and I think that's what I've really enjoyed about Next because I... All I have to do is make 12 payments, and then I can yeah. get, get a new phone. Just give them this phone, they give me the next one back. You know, and it's kind of if, if, instead of me having to put the phone on Craigslist every year, get money back for it, put that towards the new one, it's kind of just made it really easy for me. And, the, and, and that's how a lot of people have done it kind of since the iPhone came out, especially, and as you mentioned, the resale value made it make sense. And I, I know a lot of my coworkers did similar things, like they got the first iPhone and they sold it used yep. so they could buy the next one. Mm -hmm. And it's weird that all that pressure would be put on the, the end user. And it, it, se it seems logical that the phone companies would find a way to kind of integrate that into their own programs. And a lot of them, they've been doing some version of this before. Because I remember back when I had Sprint several, several years ago, they had their like sprint loyalty program or whatever they called it and you could upgrade after a year yeah and, and that was you know it, yeah. it was priced differently and it was it wasn't it was harder to figure out exactly what you were paying but it was basically the same thing and, and what they've done now is they've added some clarity to it so that you know going in okay i'm paying x amount and i'll be able to upgrade very quickly right and i was paying you know for about 299 dollars a phone uh, at the subsidized rate, getting the middle level phone every year uh, in terms of space that was yep. two ninety nine a year. So if they can find a way, uh, and they did with the next program, for me to pay around that a year in the twelve payments, and then be able to walk in there every twelve months, which is about how often a phone comes out, give them the old one and get the brand new one, I'm a happy happy camper, you know. And uh, 
So it's worked exactly. out. It's worked out well for me. The sportscasts are here with Richard Lawler from Engadget.com. And I was looking through last night. I was just going through the last three months of your work, just checking out. <laughs> and it's amazing how vast, under the umbrella of writing about technology, how f- how many different places that's taken you. I mean, just if we bring it- up the last page of your work, you got an Apple uh, Music article, uh, Vizio article, Xbox uh you're all over the place. Video games. It's got to be really fun to just be able to kind of just look out at the world of technology and bring uh, different pieces to your work every day. It is. And that's, I think, what I enjoy the most about it. And it's funny because it's changed so much since I started doing this. I, I started writing for a site. It was called HD Beat, kind of focusing just on HD TVs. And then we became a part of Engadget. We uh, rebranded as Engadget HD. And then that kind of just became a part of the main Engadget website. And I never know what kind of story I might have to cover tomorrow because everything is tech now. You, you look at the election, you look at social, I, I mean, pretty much everything about social interaction has now become internet and social media powered. Yeah. There's almost nothing that technology doesn't touch. And sometimes it's tough to remember and have a good a perspective of, okay, I do know these things. I know about these products, but I may not know about this area. So I've got to be careful about, Trying to cover too, trying to cover too deeply into something that I don't know, and, and knowing what I can explain when. Yeah, and it's it's you mentioned the election, and it's amazing how quickly this technology has been moving the last few years. I mean, if you look at the Kerry versus Bush election in two thousand four, <laughs> we didn't have YouTube yet. Oh, it's it's I, I don't think that many of the people watching now could even understand what it was like when you couldn't see everything right when you couldn't even see the highlights now i can be on my my twitter feed and i can see a highlight of you know demar derozan attempting a 360 dunk in the game right after it happened i remember the first video that i saw that i saw on the internet instead of on tv it was when uh vince carter dunked over that that french guy right yeah i remember the play because I, i was away at school like we didn't have a bunch of channels i didn't see it but I, like, downloaded it on LimeWire or something like that. That's how long ago that was. You know what's been blowing me away is Periscope and concerts and how Periscope has changed concerts. Uh, it, it's amazing. It, it is an, an amazing change. And with the live streaming and having that ability in pretty much every phone, that's what's especially changed with the rollout of these live streaming apps now. Everyone has that access and can do it. Uh, when the thing was going down in Turkey, when the coup attempt was happening, yeah. you could – open up Periscope or open up Facebook Live and kind of just click around in different cities in Turkey and get a live feed from anywhere. It, it It's what a time to be alive. Well, we've seen how crazy Twitter has been in this election cycle with obviously the kind of polarizing way which Donald Trump us- utilizes Twitter. Yes. Um, we know Twitter is going to be a big part of this election. What are some other ways you think technology is going to be remembered when we look back on the 2016 presidential election. It's funny that you've already had two massive email scandals because email is such an old technology, but at the same time, it's kind of survived. And I was just talking to one of my coworkers about this the other day. 
we talk about kids and how they use social media and, and post different things. But every time there's an email scandal, you see that the old people send everything in email kind of just because I think they still use it like memos and they just never expect that that kind of thing will get out or that it will always be around. It feels private. So you see you see these generation gaps in, in the way that people use technology and how, how it affects things. That's so really I think that's probably yeah. the biggest thing is that you have these generation gaps and you have the different elements moving. Because if you take a look, just think about the elections that we're going to have in 10 or 12 years, maybe sooner than that. When we're talking about someone, we will uh, eventually elect someone for president who has had a Facebook account for their entire life. And we'll be able to go back and look at what they said in seventh grade or something like that. Yeah. That's going to be different. And yeah. I don't know how, I don't know if it will be better or if it will just be a change and we'll all have to adjust. It's just, it's, it, going, you know, going back to, to what you said before, it, it has really affected every single thing in life. There, there's, there's nothing that, that is now not a tech story. Yeah. And I think we have to do a better job of helping our younger people understand that if they want to be the president, that all this stuff they're posting in the seventh grade is going to go away. Yeah, uh, man, I, I don't know about you. I know if, if we had had phones to record everything uh, that we did and share them to everyone, yikes. <laughs> I, I couldn't get hired to do anything right. <laughs> because we, we would have done it. Yeah. And that man would just be following me around. But I think I think what's fun, what is also interesting is the way that the kids have reacted to things like that. And you know, bringing back the generation gap, look at the NBA, for example. You have things like uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name on the Lakers who leaked the video of Nick Young. Uh, oh yeah, um, Start Russell is it Russell? Yes. Yeah. And so he's got this problem, but you you look at the way that young people use the internet now. Most of them are on Snapchat and things like that. They've adjusted to using services that don't keep everything for forever, because not not just for their own security, but because. They're used to a world where they have a digital camera that has infinite recording time. They don't think photos are valuable like like we do. Like like we used to have to take a picture to be developed, and we would have to wait a week to get it back. Right. So if you took a picture, it had to be something that you really really wanted, and you really valued it. And they, they don't have the same relationship to it. The sportscasters are here with uh, Richard Lawler from Engadget.com. You can find him on Twitter. He's at RJCC. Two more big topics I want to hit on. I'll let you get back to work. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Nintendo because my partner on the podcast and I, we've all, one thing we do at the end of each show is we just kind of talk about, it's just like we call it one last thing and we just give one more uh, one more chance for us to open our mouths on the show. And for years I've been screaming about Nintendo not making apps and yeah. just how incredible their IPs are and how... You know, they could kill it. How Super Mario Brothers, the app, would be number one in the iStore for like five straight years. And Pokemon Go obviously took the world by storm a few weeks ago and kind of feels like we're already moving past it a little bit. But I wonder if you think Nintendo kind of seen what happened with Pokemon Go, seen the way it affected their stock, their company... The buzz that they got kind of happened at the perfect time, too, because it's right around the time they announced this new, really cool uh, reissue of the 8-bit Nintendo. Uh, do you think the success of Pokemon Go will lead to more from Nintendo in terms of using their, their intellectual properties that they have uh, to make apps uh, for cell phones? 
I hope it does, but I'm not sure that it will because Nintendo's an, an interesting company. They don't see themselves the same way that maybe you or I would see it, the way that we've grown up with Nintendo and with all of these brands. And especially just like you talk about with Pokemon Go, the way that it exploded, uh, there was a pretty good article about how it came about. Uh, took 20 years to make this overnight uh, success. They've got all this brand equity built up. And if you've probably seen stories over the last few weeks or over the last few days about how their stock price plunged once people found out right. they don't really own the game. Yeah. But I think that what it, it proved is that their brand is so strong that if they do take advantage of it in the right way, these things are really valuable. But Nintendo's an old company. They've been around since 1889. Right. They don't necessarily want to change and they don't want to give up that control. Uh, even if you look at something like Pokemon Go, Apple is making a large amount of those profits because they get money from everything that they sell in the app store right so nintendo would prefer even if it looks sensible to you or i where we're looking at it and saying okay if you just sell it if you just sell an app then you can reach so many people you look at the explosion of pokemon go nintendo's looking at it and saying why would we give up this 30 percent split on this ip that we own i get that but it just seems like they're leaving so much on the table i mean when you think about the IPs they have, I mean, they could have the f- top five games in yep. the iStore instantly, but and and prope- like in per- in forever. I mean, yeah. I, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah. If if you could turn your iPhone into a, a complete Nintendo clone and you know plug it into your TV and just play the games that way, everyone would buy that. Like like everyone would buy yeah. a Duck Hunt for yeah. their iPhone and all of and all of the old games. Yeah, and I, I think that the you know the the mini Nintendo that's great that's such a cool idea 50 bucks i think is a great price point people are gonna go crazy for these at christmas and it's perfect timing because of the the age of everyone yeah i think it's it's a brilliant idea you know but the very first thing i thought of was well can you add games and the answer ended up being no and it's like well it's kind of disappointing i mean can't you know that means you know no contra ever on this thing but um i watched a documentary the other day actually some kid tried to go and without using the internet, buy all 600-plus Nintendo games in 30 oh, days. Wow. Uh, you know, and you realize how many titles there was for this 8-bit system that, you know, it's been hasn't been anyone's primary system in all these years, yet maybe it's still everyone's favorite. It's kind of a... It's just a unique phenomenon, for sure. Yeah, it's... Well, what's funny is that you've, you've already had retro systems like sort of like what Nintendo just announced, available. Like, you can buy a Genesis. You've been able to right. buy a Genesis like mm-hmm. that for years. They've, they've been... Uh, Sega licensed their brand out, and they're like letting people make it. Unfortunately, they're just kind of low quality. I think what Nintendo did was really smart. What's coming out seems to be a very high-quality system. You can get yeah. the two controllers. HDMI. You can plug it directly into your HDTV. Mm-hmm. Most of the retro-ish things don't have HDMI outputs, which is, is just incredible. You're like... They're, they're throwing away so much money that way. Yeah, yeah. There, a lot about it is genius for sure. I can't wait to see how it does. Uh, let's do this before we let you go. We got to talk a little bit about about sports and technology and how they're they're intertwining here. Uh, I was talking to my dad the other day. We were talking about the NFL and and what the NFL saturation point might be. And we were talking about attendance. And I was trying to explain to him why attendance means so little to the NFL because they have repre- repackaged their games and now made so many different contracts out of them and each contract is a billion dollar contract. I mean you have the the basics, the CBS Sunday 
contract, the Fox Sunday contract, the Monday night contract, the Thursday night contract, the Sunday night contract, uh, the Sunday ticket, streaming the Sunday ticket, yeah. uh, streaming it on phones as compared to tablets. I mean, they've found so many different revenue streams, and it seems like sports in general are catching up to this. The boom in baseball salaries is basically linked to uh, the local television sports network and how DVRs have made sports on TV so much more valuable because they're sort of DVR-proof in a way. Yeah. I'm throwing a bunch out there. What do you think, uh, technology-wise, is having the biggest impact on sports, and what do you think is around the corner that we maybe aren't anticipating yet? Well, I think what you mentioned as far as being DVR-proof currently is having the biggest impact. If you look at all yeah. the sports, the money has changed so drastically. And, and the best example is just the NBA this offseason because the TV money has come in and the contracts have skyrocketed. Yep. Backups uh, getting $80 million Like, like contracts, It has changed yeah. the course of the league for the next decade easily. Mm-hmm. Because you, what you have with sports is just, it's, it's DVR-proof. It's something that people will, will pay to watch and will pay to watch live. People won't pay to watch TV shows and and even really old movies when you have Netflix. Like that, but Netflix can't compete with live sports, and they've shown no indication that they want to get into that. Uh, the other way that it that it gets into it is you now have these other tech companies bidding for these uh, broadcasts, which drives the price up even even more. Right. Every time the NFL contract has come up, every time the the NBA, the NHL, the what have you. Now you have companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft getting into it, potentially trying to buy it for their services. And while the broadcasts haven't changed significantly, the price has changed. And, and that's, that's definitely affecting the sport. How it will change in the future is harder to tell. I, I know Twitter recently did a deal with the NFL. They're doing, doing deals with lots of the leagues. Facebook is also yeah. doing, making agreements. I just I don't know. Maybe I'm too old. I just can't see um, you know really trying to watch the game on Twitter. Yeah, that that's in, you know it's like last year the NFL dipped their toes into stream you know with the first streaming games on Yahoo. Yeah. Was that the Bills and the Jaguars? Maybe was the first game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the game from the UK. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of I think what kind of led to Twitter now. Like it's kind of like they tried it on Yahoo and now they're gonna you know try on Twitter and I think that they. Have been pretty forward about their experimenting, which is easy to do when you have so much money in the bank. I guess you know. Yep. <laughs> you know it, they they certainly can afford it. Although, man, the the uh, the Thursday night games, I, I just I just wish that wasn't a thing. They, yeah, it's they, such they bad suck. football. Yeah, they suck. This was a really interesting thing. I don't know if you heard this. You know, they, they've always talked about the idea of of maybe expanding the season, and it it was kind of a joy. I think a surprise, pleasant surprise to everyone. How how epically that failed in the last collective bargaining. But there's a proposal kind of going around that's pretty interesting, and it's a 17-game schedule instead of eight. Two pre-18. 17 instead of 18. Uh, so expanding by one regular season game. Mm-hmm. You go down to the two preseason games. You add uh, an extra bye week, and every team plays an international game. So no one loses a home game. That extra week... Uh, that extra 17th game is for a team to play internationally, whether it be like the Bills in Buffalo, the Jaguars in London, however they wanted to do it. And what they create instantly right there is another 
another package, the international package. Who's going to bid for the rights to the international package? You know, so I think that that's building a lot of steam and could be a reality in the NFL. And then where would they sell the international package? You know, who would who would bid for that? Who would win that? You know, and and that's probably I think you're right that that's probably where they're going because that's the next huge money jump for them is to become more of a worldwide sport. I just don't know how they're going to get the union to agree with it because the players don't want to play more games. Right. Right. You know they don't want to do the travel, but if they but if they make the money add up, the you know the they're going to go for it, right? And they're giving them an, uh, you, an you know, extra if vacation. You, if you look at the the recent UFC sale, I think that the price that they got, what, what did it go for? Uh, four billion. Four billion. Yeah, because it's so it's so popular internationally, and you know really, what else are you going to buy that has that kind of appeal around the world? Yeah, and I'm interested to see too. You know the. The WWE, WWF has always sort of uh, set some trends over the years, you know, with pay-per-view or whatever the case. And it's interesting to see how other leagues are reacting to their network. You know, the WWE network was just essentially, you know, a streaming channel, you know, uh, on the Internet. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see if leagues start to use their libraries in that way. Um, You know, the NFL just had the show come out on Amazon. Sort of yeah. like a year-long Hard Knocks, which is fantastic if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Um, it's on Amazon. But all these places are looking for content, and it'll be interesting to see if the leagues kind of use their content and their libraries in a way that, like, the WWE has with their network. Exactly, and you can sell it in so many more countries. If you look now, Netflix is a customer worldwide. If they, if they want to buy something, they want to buy it in fundamentally every country in the world. It just... It changes. It changes everything. And, and like you said, they have these archives. The NFL really was kind of out front in, in that. But as WWE also in launching its own network. But when the NFL launched this network, they already had NFL films with years and years of well organized footage going back that they could just pull from and make a channel out of. Right. No one was as prepared as the NFL was for something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, last thing: How is the Olympics going to be different this year because of technology? Well, in a lot of ways, the broadcast, it's always on the kind of the cutting edge of broadcast technology. The first time I saw an 8K super high vision uh, broadcast was from the London Olympics in in 2012. 2012, yeah. Uh, But that was only available. You kind of had to go somewhere to see that. And it's still not really going to be available for this one. But you will be able to get 4K and Ultra HD with, with HDR. The bad news is it will be delayed a day, which is similar uh, to the way that the Olympic broadcast worked in 2004 when they first uh, you know, made the, the broadcast widely available. And I, when I bought my first HGTV, I would watch the Olympics. I would watch the live standard def broadcast. And then the next day, I would watch basically the highlight broadcast over again in, in high definition. Gotcha. And if you're trying to watch it in 4K, that's the kind of experience that you're going to have. Uh, there will also be virtual reality available, but it's only available if you have a Samsung Gear VR headset to go with your phone. Okay, and but t- you know you'll you'll be able to get some things like that. Also, they're using robotic cameras so much more now. You're going to get angles in the pools, uh, on gymnastics that you just couldn't get before because you, they couldn't put a, a camera maybe in the roof or underwater gotcha. and put a guy there. But because they can control it from their control room, they can have cameras everywhere. Very cool, and it's going to be the the most live events ever in an Olympics available through streaming and things like that. Yes, yeah. NBC is making. Every single sporting event available live. If you have a cable login to uh, log in on their website and stream, you'll be able to see 
you know, basically everything. You'll also be able to see it on across their channels. Uh, the only thing that's not going to be live is the opening ceremony. That's right. going to be tape delayed. Yeah, they're protecting that. Very interesting. Uh, Richard Lawler is with Engadget.com. Uh, it's Engadget.com. And you can find him on Twitter. He's at RJCC. Anything else plug-wise you want to put out there about the site or where to follow you or anything you want? Go ahead and plug it <laughs> Man, th- thanks for the opportunity. Uh, let me give a shout-out. The Midnight Golf Program, uh, just a, a charity that I've become familiar with, they're trying to get some money from Gatorade. So if you go to Midnight Golf on Twitter, you can vote for them uh, so they can get so you know some donations that way but yeah otherwise just twitter uh engadget.com you can always see my work there thanks so much for doing this i had fun i really did thank you for having me All right, I want to thank Richard Bauer for being on the podcast today. Thank God I didn't call him Jerry. I wanted him to call him Jerry Lawler because he's a wrestler. Uh, also, want to thank Molly Knight for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and last week's podcast with Robert Mays from The Ringer on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Uh, at sports underscore casters and Anthony's at Dazer with three R's. Not that he tweets much. Uh, you can also email us to sports. Yeah, I need to start tweeting more. I need to start tweeting more. Yeah, you can find us on email the sportscasters at gmail.com And next week is the return of Joe Buck. So make sure you turn in, tune in for that. Um, all right, one last thing. You're up. Alright, well, um, so I was at a Coldplay concert last week at MetLife, so I guess I'll give you a little concert review. Um, used to be, like, a, a big Coldplay guy. You remember, like, when I was yeah. a little younger, like, I guess the early stuff I, I liked more, uh, than the newer stuff, but they always put on a good show. Uh, Dad was in town. Uh, we brought him out here for Father's Day. We went to the Yankees game Friday. That was his first ever Major League ball game, which blew my mind. I don't know if you knew that, Steve-O. Yeah. But, he says um, the most unbelievable got, things, things sometimes. So since you brought this up, so I'm asking him the other day how the concert was, right? And he's like, "Oh <laughs> man, I'm I hadn't been to a concert since I seen Iron Maiden at in like the 1980s." I'm like, "What are you talking about? We've been to like 12 concerts together." Like how? <laughs> I'm like, "How do you not remember like?" Going to Rochester to see Ozzy, going to Darien Lake for concerts. Like, what do you mean is your first concert since Iron Maiden? Like, <laughs> That's what, crazy. I what don't know. What in the that. world are you yeah, talking maybe, about? Maybe he's been to 10 other games, but. I don't know what is what goes on in his head sometimes. Like, he just says the most shocking things. Like, he didn't really have a response. Like, because he, he literally thought, I think, that, that, was, that his last concert was. Like, somehow he had forgot <laughs> all the other ones. Like, he looked at me. Like, with a look like, oh, yeah, like, wait, I have been to all these other concerts since, I mean, at least five concerts since the 1995 he's been to. Yeah. Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That is funny. So, anyway, but go but ahead. That was, uh, yeah, but that was cool. We got, I got, I got, like, 30-hour tickets, and I was all fired up. It was Red Sox-Yankees, so that was kind of cool. Uh, get to our seats, and we literally could not see left field. I totally forgot we were, like, an obstructed view. 
so we can barely see like the center fielder. Like we're like that far right of him. So that was interesting. But the Yanks was fun. But Coldplay, um, it was sweet. I mean, Coldplay puts on a show. They give you these wristbands that are like synced up with their song and the lights they're playing. And at MetLife, there's like I don't know, sixty, seventy thousand people. So it was a really cool like show. Um, yeah, you know, I think you you get what you think you'll get. So yeah, it was fun. I, I would recommend if you haven't seen them, go see them because they are a fun show to see. Yeah, I can respect it. It's always been a little bit overproduced for me. Sometimes when you're playing in a stadium, you kind of do need to overproduce to some extent, I guess. Um, I just. Stadium shows are difficult in general to pull off. I mean, obviously, inside is always better. Smaller is always better. And the stadium show, right yeah, away, it's the opposite. I think that's why they blew you, blow you away with the lights, you know? It's so, I mean, so it's, it's big. It's, show, and, you know? it's so big and so outside. But did yeah. you stay right till the yeah. end of the show? Did you stay till the end of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We stayed at the end. So how did uh, which you? Probably was a bad idea because that train back to the city is a disaster. Yeah. How? So you went in the tunnel or whatever. You went through it. I've heard about this train that it's the worst thing ever. You have to go down oh, in a tunnel man. and you're backed up like twenty Dude, trains. So, yeah. So it took us like four trains worse to get on a train. So that like takes you to Secaucus, and then Secaucus takes you to Penn Station. So you have to make a transfer, and it takes you like an hour and 15 minutes to get in the first train. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. I remember when I, that weekend, we didn't get by get back to like 2 o'clock in the morning. So it kind of like takes your night away, but it was cool. I mean, if you see them at a stadium, they're in your, if they're in your town, I'd say go see them. It's cool. It's a fun night. Yeah, I respect I respect them. He's always been a good guest on Howard. Um, I have respect for them. They probably wouldn't be in my top 100 bands, but I have no beef. Respect them. I get it. They're a great. Any rock band that can still draw 60,000 in a stadium in 2016 has my respect for sure. Uh, Radiohead's been in the city the right. last couple of days. That's another band that me and I respect. I think they the Garden Lock. Yeah, right? they've been yeah they've been in the city the last two days. Yeah, a bunch of my yeah. friends about yeah. And I respect them, but I I just I don't get it musically. I don't get it. It's just not. Yeah, me either. Yeah. I like a couple songs. Yeah, I don't I don't understand it at all. So, um, all right, one last thing for me today. Uh, I wanted to weigh in on Ghostbusters. Um, obviously, a couple weeks ago, um, the Ghostbusters. 2016 came out and obviously it has an all-female cast um, and it to me is more of a a reboot than a remake I don't think they were in any way trying to remake 1984 Ghostbusters I'm a huge 80s guy I'm not really a Ghostbusters guy I never got into Ghostbusters that much I definitely seen both of the movies whatever so it's not like they're personally insulting my childhood. Now, this happened to me a few years ago when they remade The Karate Kid with Will Smith's son. Um, and I just didn't watch it. And I don't understand why that's so hard for people. And I feel really awful for the girl who seems to be taking all the heat from Saturday Night Live, the black girl, you know, who's got to like defend herself and defend the movie on Twitter to idiots all day. And I don't understand that. Oh, yeah. 
You know, and it's interesting to me. One thing I did want to, I did notice is that. So on Rotten Tomatoes, the average score from the audience is fifty-eight percent, but the average score from the critics is seventy-three percent. That almost never happens. And I do think the film is getting protected a little bit because people don't want to shit on it because they don't want to look like they're shitting on it just because females are in it. So I would question right. the honesty of the critics to some degree. Very plainly correct. You know, I feel like that maybe they're being a little safe. And it it has done awful at the box office, certainly well below their expectations. But if you're a big Ghostbusters guy and this annoys you for some reason, just don't watch it. I, I can't understand why you have to beat up the poor girls on Twitter over it. Like, just... It's fine I, I to just skip it. I can't believe people, like, like, Ghostbusters so much to get this so fired up about them. Well, and that's the other part yeah, I wanted I to mention. Imagine. On Netflix, there is... And they're getting, like... Yeah, no, on Netflix, there's a documentary called Ghost Heads. And it's about... It's about people who not only are they Ghostbusters super fans, but they kind of do ghostbusting in real life. Like they have like the one wow. guy the one guy has a one, like a, a reboot of the car and he's got the pack thing. And part of it they do good. They like go to hospitals and they meet with little kids and make you know some good comes of it. You know, but there's also some really cringy kind of like douche chill moments in the documentary where you just can't get over these guys you know like there's a main guy too there's a main ghost head like the original and biggest ghost head who actually even got a like a cameo in the second movie in ghostbusters 2 um but it's a really interesting dream come true yeah it's a really interesting documentary on ghost heads and look it like i said the karate kid is maybe my favorite film of all time and there was a remake and I wasn't interested in it because Mr. Miyagi wasn't in it and Daniel's son was Will Smith's son, not Ralph Macchio. So I just didn't watch it. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know why it's what, – what happened to us? Like why we have to be so angry at this poor woman who did nothing but take a job in a movie. I mean she doesn't owe any of you dorks anything. So I don't know. Back off. And thanks for co-hosting. We'll be back next week with Joe Buck.